Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Thanks and welcome to Story Hour. It's my pleasure today to welcome Gene Yang and we're actually welcoming him back. He was an undergrad at Cal not so many years ago. Um, he's an East Bay native. Uh, we were talking before um, a couple of minutes ago and I was trying to figure out where he was born, and the nearest we could get was Alameda or Fremont, one of the two. But we know he went to school here. So um, um, he's, he's an East Bay native. His father is an electrical engineer, and his mother is a programmer. After an encounter with a Superman comic in the fifth grade, Gene began drawing his own comics. As an undergrad here at Cal, he wanted to major in art, but his father said, and this will sound familiar to anybody with first-generation immigrant parents, his father said, do something practical. After graduation, I'll leave you alone. So Gene majored in computer science with a minor in creative writing, and after graduating, worked as a computer engineer in Emeryville. However, two years later, it became clear to him during a five-day silent retreat that this wasn't supposed to be his life. So he quit and he began teaching at a high school and also returned to his passion, drawing comics. In 1996, he began publishing under his own imprint, Humble Comics. The following year, he won a prestigious industry grant from the Zarek Foundation for his book, Gordon Yamamoto and the King of the Geeks. He kept publishing and in 2006, his American-born Chinese became the first graphic novel to be nominated for the National Book Award and the first to win the American Library Association's Prince Award in addition to an Eisner Award. It was published in translation in 12 countries and won numerous critical accolades and honors. The fact that it is a graphic novel, of course, prevented some people from accepting that it deserved all this attention, and in fact got them all hot under the collar. Typical of these reactions was one from Tony Long, who wrote in Wired magazine, Comic books should not be nominated for National Book Awards in any category. That should be reserved for books that are, well, all words. As literature, the comic book does not deserve equal status with real novels or short stories, end quote. As a novelist who writes books that have unfortunately been all words and more words, I find this attitude puzzling but recognizable. In some ways, it's part of the battle that's been raging from the beginning of the print revolution when self-appointed cultural arbiters found it necessary to divide all art into high and low culture. Illustrated narratives until recently have been unceremoniously relegated to the realm of the low. Like many such value judgments, this has been an ultimately arbitrary one that ignores the depth and power of narratives like American-born Chinese. In this book, Gene moves deftly between three stories, the coming of age of an Asian-American high school student, the adventures of the mythological monkey king, who really doesn't like being a monkey, and the tale of Chin Ki, who is a distillation of every stereotype about Orientals that the West has ever come up with. As we move between these three stories, we also go from one storytelling mode to another, from one level of reality and metaphor to another. Reading American-born Chinese, I was reminded of Scott McCloud's understanding comics, in which he points to that space beneath, between the panels in comic books. Um, McCloud writes, that space is what comic aficionados have named the gutter. And despite its unceremonious title, the gutter plays host to much of the magic and mystery that are at the very heart of comics. 
Here in the limbo of the gutter, human imagination takes two separate ideas and transforms them into a single idea, end quote. It seems to me that in the gaps between these three stories in these limbos, American-born Chinese finds magic and mystery and transforms the reader. And that is what art in any medium does for us. There's much else to say about the work that has followed American-born Chinese, but I've already gone on too long, so I'll let you discover that, those stories yourselves. Uh, please join me in welcoming Jin Yang. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for being here. I don't know if I'm going to be able to live up to that introduction. That was, that was amazing. Thank you. So um, what I'd like to do today is talk about two of my favorite subjects in the entire world. I'd like to talk about comics, and I'd like to talk about me. So I'm going to start with me. Um, I, I tell people that I'm like Batman, not just in my uncanny resemblance to Christian Bale, but also in the fact that I have two different jobs. So Batman has two jobs. He is a billionaire playboy by day and a crime fighter by night. I have two jobs. I am a high school teacher by day and a cartoonist by night. So I uh, teach at Bishbo Dowd High School. Has anybody heard of Bishbo Dowd? We have really awesome sports teams. I, I teach computer science there, so generally my students have nothing to do with the sports teams. But um, I've been there for about 12 years. Recently, about two or three years ago, I had to go part-time at Bishbo Dowd because my other job was starting to eat up more and more of my hours. So I also draw comic books. I've also been doing this for about 12 years, maybe 12 or 13 years. These are some of the comics that I've done in the past. Uh, just this spring, I had two different graphic novels released. Uh, they're both collections of older material. So Prime Baby is a collection of a short strip that I did for the New York Times magazine. And Animal, Cracker is, Animal Crackers is the collection of um, the first two graphic novels that I did as an adult. What I'm going to talk about today is first, how I got into comics. Second, how I got published. And if we have time, I'd like to do a short reading from, from Prime Baby. Now, I got into comics in the fifth grade. I became a comic book nerd, an official comic book nerd in the fifth grade. Before that, I was just a nerd. Uh, in fifth grade, one fateful night, my mom took, us, took me to um, our local bookstore. And they used to have these things called spinner racks. They don't really have these anymore, but they were these wire frame racks that would carry individual issues of that month's comics all around it. And you could spin them so that you could see them all. So I'd seen these before this day. You know, the, these were familiar to me. But for some reason, on this particular night, this particular issue of Marvel 2-in-1 caught my eye. Anybody heard of uh, Marvel 2-in-1? They don't publish this anymore. But basically what they did was they would take two heroes in the Marvel Universe that didn't usually hang out together, and then they'd put them together and make them have some sort of a crazy adventure. So in this particular issue, it was Thing paired up with Rom the Space Knight. So anybody know who Thing is? You all know who the Thing is? The Thing is pretty popular. He shows up in blockbuster movies every now and then. He's you know, on Saturday morning cartoons. Anybody heard of Rom the Space Knight? No one? Okay. If you've heard of Ron the Space Knight, that's a sign that you are a true geek. This is the way geeks recognize each other, right? But, but basically, Rom is this superhero that dresses up like a, like a robot and fights crime in outer space. I took one look at this cover, and I immediately fell in love. I, I fell to my bones that I had to own this issue. So I took it to my mom. I showed her, and I said, Mom, please, 
in the depths of my bones, I want this comic. Can you please buy it for me? And she took one look at this cover and she said, no, absolutely not. Those two monsters look way too scary. They're going to give you nightmares, even though you're in fifth grade already. They're going to give you nightmares, and uh, you cannot have it. So to this day, I have no idea what the story's about. (laughs) Instead, she bought me this. This was the most recent issue of Superman. So Superman, as we all know, is every parent's favorite superhero, right? Unlike Rom and Thing, he's not scary looking at all. He's actually pretty good looking. He dresses in bright blue, just like a Boy Scout. He never swears, doesn't kill people, always says please. Well, I took this home and I read it. It was 1984 at the time. And in this story, the atomic bomb drops in 1986. It kills off most of the world's population. And then the few remnants who are left gather themselves into these little societies that are really lawless. So a group of men have to get together dress up in medieval-style armor, and ride around the countryside on these giant mutated dogs to fight crime. Superman is uh, one of the survivors, because, you know, he's Superman. So he teams up with these atomic knights to fight crime. In the last three pages, it's revealed that this whole thing is just a dream. But it did not keep this book from freaking me out. It, <laughs> this, was like the, this was the 80s, right? So, so I stayed up late nights thinking about the bomb, thinking about mutated dogs and about Superman. And I also stayed up thinking about comics and about how this combination of words and pictures really got into my brain in a way that neither comics nor pictures had done in the past. Within uh, a few weeks uh, of getting this issue, I went from being a comic book reader to being a comic book creator. I had a friend in fifth grade named Jeremy Kuniyoshi who was just as nerdy as me. At that point, he was already a veteran comic book collector. He had long boxes and long boxes of Daredevil at home. Uh, He took me to my first comic book store. And together, we started drawing comics. So I would, well, we would come up with a story together. I would do all the penciling. He would do all the inking. And then his mom would take our originals to her workplace. And after all of her coworkers left, she would sneak copies on the copy machine. And then she would give them back to us. We would staple them. And we would sell them uh, to, our, to our classmates for uh, two quarters apiece. This was our our hero, Spade Hunter. Um, He was basically like Robin Hood, except instead of a bow and arrow, he had this giant discus that he would throw at people's heads. And we thought it was awesome. Um, Years later, years later, uh, after American Born Chinese was published, I went on um, this local television show, and they interviewed me about how I got started in comics. So I started talking about Spade Hunter. And at that point... I realized that Spade Hunter is actually kind of a racially tinged uh, term. I, I, uh, I, said, I said, you know, we had this character named Spade Hunter, and then the cameraman, who was an African-American, actually spat out his coffee. And I was like, wow, you've heard of him? But uh, that wasn't it at all. In any case, I, I, I kept reading comics, I kept writing comics, I kept drawing comics through fifth grade, through sixth grade. In seventh grade, I had this friend who was way cooler than me. So, you know, in seventh grade, most of us have a really hard time getting a single girlfriend, and this guy had like six, okay? He, one day he saw me reading a comic, and he told me, you know, if you keep doing that, you are never going to get a girlfriend. So at this point, this is seventh grade, I realized 
deep in the depths of my bones, I really wanted a girlfriend. So I, I decided to stop reading comics. I stopped reading comics, I stopped buying comics, I stopped drawing comics, I stopped writing comics, and I traded in my collection of comics for a denim jacket. I also learned from my cool friend how to peg my pants. And after that, I went on my relentless pursuit of a girlfriend. So this went on from maybe seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. By 10th grade, I realized that the girlfriend thing just wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so so I, I looked at myself. I had neither a girlfriend nor comics. I decided, well, I can do something about one of these things. So I started collecting comics again, and I collected with a fervor that surpassed anything that I had in fifth grade. I, I, these are some of my favorite comics from when I was in high school. The Hulk at the time was being written by this guy named Peter David that I thought was a genius. I still kind of think he's a genius. Uh, the Spirit was a, a reprint series that um, basically represented these stories from the 1940s by this guy named Will Eisner. Will Eisner's considered the godfather of American comics. Uh, two, two Christmases ago, they actually turned The Spirit into a really, really bad movie. But do not judge the original comics on that movie. The original comics are amazing. And then finally, Uncle Scrooge. I actually came into Uncle Scrooge pretty late in life. Most people encounter Uncle Scrooge when they're in like second grade or third grade. I started reading Uncle Scrooge when I was in 10th grade, and I immediately fell in love. Uncle Scrooge is amazing. There's this guy named Carl Barks that invented Uncle Scrooge and did most of his stories, and he's a, he's a storytelling genius. This is probably why I didn't get a girlfriend, because I was so into Uncle Scrooge when I was in high school. But in any case, I started collecting. I started collecting with a deep, deep fervor. My parents, meanwhile, looked at what I was doing, and they were kind of worried. So I've decided throughout this presentation to depict my parents' emotional state with these emoticons from Facebook. This isn't actually what my parents look like, but that's kind of the expression that they had. So they saw me starting to collect comics again, and they thought, man, we thought you gave that up when you were in, like, seventh grade. Why are you doing that again? Eventually, I eased their fears by actually getting into this fine institution. Uh, I, I came here in 91, left in 95, barely on time. Uh, I, I, to be honest, I generally don't like to tell people that I am an alum of Cal, not because I'm, a, I'm ashamed of being a, a bear. I'm, I'm actually very proud of being a bear. But because usually after I say go bears, they'll go, did you see the game last weekend? And I'll have to say, no, I didn't. I had asthma when I was little and I collected comic books. <laughs> so I didn't see the game. In any case, I came here. Um, I majored in computer science. I minored in creative writing. And when I graduated, I looked at this vast expanse of decades of adulthood that were stretched out before me, and I thought, man, if I don't publish a single comic, I'm going to die unfulfilled. So I started researching. I started researching online how to self-publish a comic book. So this was in the mid-'90s. The Internet was just getting started. I would go over to um, what they used to call the web, which was this little lab under Evans. I bet it's not there anymore. Huh. But they used to have, and I went there, and I waited for all the little pictures to load very slowly, and I started reading all these articles about how to self-publish comic books. Now, those of you who are more familiar with the traditional book market know that in traditional books, there's kind of this stigma to self-publishing, right? It's kind of like a losery thing to do. If you self-publish, it kind of means, oh, you weren't good enough to get a real publisher, so you're going to self-publish. In comics, it's totally different. In comics, self-publishing is a way of proving that you're awesome. 
because they're telling the world not only can you write and draw a comic, but you can also handle all the negotiations with the printer, you can handle all the distribution, you can handle all the business. Uh, here are some examples of really, really popular and successful self-published books. Um, the most popular of these is probably Bone, which is right in the middle. It's done by Jeff Smith. It's um, for middle school and up. If you haven't read it, you really owe it to yourself to read it. It's sort of like Lord of the Rings, except with cartoon animals. Jeff Smith eventually signed with Scholastic, which is this giant New York book publisher. But when he signed with Scholastic, he actually had them put a clause in there that allowed him to continue to self-publish Bone. So Scholastic puts out a color version of Bone, and then he self-publishes a black and white version. The reason why he did that was because he didn't want to lose that proof that he was awesome. So in comics, self-publishing is awesome. I went online. I um, got all this information. Here's one of my favorite websites. It's still around, but it hasn't been updated since the late 90s. But I got all this information about how to self-publish. I learned two things. First, I learned that it, take, it took, at the time, about $3,000 to self-publish a single comic. I was working as a programmer at the time. I decided to save as much money as I could to, um, during this one summer so that I could self-publish uh, myself. I took on as many overtime hours, I, I, I just, and I tried to eat ramen for every meal, saved up $3,000. I also learned about um, the Xeric grant. So you all are familiar with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? This was created by two guys who were dirt poor. I think they were living in like one of their mom's basements. Uh, they got together, they came up with these characters, they self-published the first issue, and within a few years, they had a multi-million dollar property on their hands. Well, one of the guys named Peter Laird decided to take his millions of dollars and create the Zurich Foundation, which gives out um, grants to self-publishers twice a year. They give out six to eight grants twice a year. Um, and they're still, it's still going on. It's still going on now. Well, I, I, I learned about this online. I decided to um, submit and I had the $3,000 saved as a backup plan. Few months after my submission, I got this letter from the Xerox Foundation. And I thought it was gonna be like college admissions, right? With college admissions, big envelope is good, little envelope is bad. It was a tiny little envelope from these people, so I opened it up. And inside, they told me that they were going to give me money to self-publish my own comic book. I was, I was shocked. It was, it was better than getting a girlfriend. I, was, I freaked out. So the result was this. This is the first issue of Gordon Yamamoto and the King of the Geeks. Uh, I published it using $3,000 of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles money. And of that $3,000, I earned about 700 of it back. But I still thought it was awesome. My parents, meanwhile, were tolerant of what I was doing. They said to me, you know, this has been a lifelong dream of yours. It's really good for you to get it out of your system before you move on to your real life. <laughs> Unfortunately, self-publishing Gordon Yamamoto and the King of the Geeks number one did not get anything out of my system at all. It actually got self-publishing really deeply lodged into me. So I took that original $3,000 that I saved and I published Gordon Yamamoto and the King of the Geeks number two. Of that $3,000 of my own money, I made maybe four or 500 of it back. And then I worked for another summer, saved another $3,000, and published issue number three. And of that $3,000, I made maybe 200 of it back, if I was lucky. So at this point, I was down several thousand dollars. I thought to myself, maybe self-publishing isn't for me. So I decided to move on to mini-comics publishing. Mini-comics 
is basically what Jeremy and I were doing when we were in the fifth grade. It's where you draw your comic, you go to your Kinko's, you get it printed up, you take a long neck stapler, you staple it yourself, and then you try to con your friends into buying it, right? Or you take it to local show, show, uh, shows and you try to get people to buy it. Uh, again, from a traditional book standpoint, this seems like a really, really losery thing to do. It's like even more losery than, than self-publishing, right? But in comics, it's totally different. In comics, this is a way to prove that you are super awesome. You're telling the world not only are you together enough to write and draw your comic and handle all the printing and the distribution, but you're also telling the world you don't give a crap about money. So in, in comics, there's actually this really vibrant mini-comics culture where people create handmade comics and then they trade them with one another. And, and there's some really, some of the most vital and amazing works in the comic book industry today are, are done by mini-comics artists. My parents, however, didn't see it that way. They um, saw me Xerox copying and stapling comics myself and they were really annoyed. They said, you were doing this in fifth grade, and now you're in your mid-twenties. Why are you doing this still? Well, I, I, did, I did this for a number of years, and after, uh, after a few years, I had about 100 pages of story uh, that I had self-published, and then about 100 pages of story that I had done as mini-comics. So I decided it'd be great to see these two stories collected into graphic novels. Unfortunately, self-publishing a graphic novel is a pretty expensive thing, even in black and white. So I knew I couldn't do that myself. Um, I wasn't willing to eat that much ramen. I decided to, to, to submit to some of my favorite comics publishers. At the time, most comic publishers had submission guidelines on their websites. This isn't really true anymore, but at the time they did. So I went on the websites of uh, Image Comics and Dark Horse and Oni and Slave Labor Graphics. I read their submission guidelines very, very carefully. I followed them to a T, and I sent out my submissions. I did miss one instruction for one of these publishers, and that was for Slave Labor Graphics. Their uh, most popular publication is Johnny the Homicidal Maniac. Has anybody heard of that? Okay. Well, uh, they specified that you were supposed to include a self-addressed stamped envelope with your submission, and I forgot that. Well, over the course of the next several months, I just collected no's from all of these uh, publishers. All of them told me no, except for one. Slave Labor Graphics never got back to me. I waited a year, and after a year, I just thought, you know, they probably didn't like me so much that they didn't want to waste the stamp to tell me no. Three years later, three years after I submitted to them, Dan Vado, the uh, publisher of Slave Labor Graphics, emails me and says, you know that submission that you sent to us uh, a while back? I think we're going to do it. <laughs> so the result was this. It was uh, two different volumes of... Um, of my stories. The first was Gordon Yamamoto and the King of Geeks, collecting my self-published series. And the second was Loyola Chin and the Sampler Gun Order, which collected um, my mini-comics. And just recently, Gordon Yamamoto actually sold out, so Slave Labor reissued both of these stories in a single volume, and that's Animal Crackers. My parents, meanwhile, were watching me do this, and they were really, really worried. They, you know, like, in... in Independent publishing and independent comics publishing, there's just not a lot of money involved. And the money comes really, really late in the game. You finish your comic, you send it to the publisher, they put it out, they get it distributed, it gets bought, and if any money trickles back, you get it at that point. 
So I was making money. I wasn't losing money at this point, but I was probably making enough to maybe buy a nice dinner for two, not including tip. You know, it's, it's not a lot of money. So my parents were watching me. They're seeing that I was getting some success, but none of it was financial. Now, meanwhile, um, something very, very interesting was happening in the book world, and that was uh, that graphic novels were somehow gaining respectability. Uh, we were starting to see reviews of comics and graphic novels in Publishers Weekly and in Time Magazine and in the New York Times. And, you know, 10 or 15 years before this, this was completely unheard of. In 2003, two books actually hit the New York Times bestsellers list, two graphic novels. The first was the second volume of Persepolis, which is an autobiography by a French-Iranian woman named uh, Marjane Satrapi. It's an amazing book. If you haven't read it, you really owe it to yourself. And the second was In the Shadow of No Towers, which is done by Art Spiegelman, the, the author of Mouse, uh, about his experiences living in New York during 9-11. So these two books hit the New York Times bestsellers list. Most New York publishers up to this point were ignoring graphic novels. And s- then suddenly they freaked out. They saw, you know, there's actually money in comics. So they started you know, going to these uh, independent comic book shows with fistfuls of money and contracts, looking for the next In the Shadow of No Towers or Persepolis. One of the cartoonists that they pursued is this guy, Derek Kirkim. He's one of my closest friends. He is also an amazingly talented cartoonist. In 2003, he released a book called Same Difference and Other Stories, and it won the trifecta of comic book industry awards. It won an Eisner, a Harvey, and a Nignatz. So immediately after that, all these big New York publishers asked him for his next project. And Derek is a very good friend. He hooked me up with his favorite of all of his quarters, and that was First Second Books. So I've been with First Second ever since. They published American Born Chinese. They published um, The Eternal Smile, which is a collaborative project that I did with Derek. And they published um, the collection of Prime Baby. This was actually kind of shocking to me. Working with First Second was actually kind of shocking to me because there's a big difference between the culture of independent comics and the culture of traditional books. For one thing, they actually pay you before you finish anything, which I think is ridiculous. Like I, I had a, a conversation with Mark Siegel, who's my um, editor at First Second, and he said, well, you know, send us your comic. I said, well, I, I only have about 70% of it done. He goes, that's okay. Send it to me, and then we'll set you up with an advance. And I was like, an advance? They said, yeah, we're going to pay you money. I said, but I'm not done. You, you know, and I was thinking, if you had just bought me a burrito, I would have signed with you. I don't know. <laughs> what is this? That doesn't work anymore, but at the time, that's how I felt. So um, my parents were actually even more shocked than I was that anybody was willing to pay real money for, for comics, right? Now, American Born Chinese was much more well-received than I ever could have imagined, and... Um, it ended up opening all sorts of doors for me. One of the doors that it opened was a door to newspaper serialization. So most of us, most of us in America, when we think of comics, we generally think of newspaper strips, right? That's the, 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 the comics form that most people read most of the time. And that's certainly true of my parents. I never thought that I would ever get into newspaper comics. I, I tried when I was in high school. I tried to submit to our our uh, high school newspaper, and I realized I cannot be funny every three panels. That's a, that's a very unique skill. Well, in any case, um, in 2008, about two years after American Born Chinese was published, 
my agent calls me up and says, the New York Times wants you to do a strip for them for their Sunday magazine. Do you want to do it? And I said, uh, yes, because they're the New York Times. <laughs> so I ended up doing um, a strip called Prime Baby, which is about a young man who gets this baby sister that he's really, really jealous of. So he decides to try to prove to his parents that the sister is an alien. Uh, it ran every Sunday in the New York Times. It was, a, it was a part of their Sunday magazine insert. It ran for about three months. Um, and after I was finished, they actually canceled the feature. They told me it wasn't my fault, but who knows. Uh, and, and then since then, uh, First Second has, has collected it. My dad told me, like, uh, on the day that the very first of these Prime Baby strips came out, he told me that he went to four different stores looking for it. Um, he, you know, he lives in San Jose. There's not a lot of New York Times there. He finally found a copy of the New York Times at a local Starbucks, and he paid $5 for it, which is a lot for a newspaper, especially when you're an older Chinese man. Uh, and then he told me that after he read the strip, even though he didn't totally understand it, that he was really happy. So let me, uh, let me do a short reading out of, out of Prime Baby, and then uh, I can take some uh, questions. This um, was actually inspired by some of what I was seeing at my house. I'm a dad now. I have three kids. Uh, I have a boy who's seven years old, uh, a three-year-old daughter, and then a nine-month-old daughter. Now, when my, when my second child was born, my first daughter, my son loved her. Like he, he saw her at the hospital, and he asked me, Dad, can we keep her? And I said, yes, we can keep her. But then after we brought her home, things kind of changed, especially after she started walking and touching his stuff. So um, this was inspired by, by the relationship that they have with each other. Now, I have to say that my son is not as evil as the main character in my story, but the underlying themes were there. Here's me at my sixth birthday party two years ago, back when the world still made sense. Ha, look at this one. Happy as a pig in slop. I told my parents not to invite anyone from school so I could have the whole cake to myself. The old lady behind me is my grandma. I let her come because she's diabetic. <laughs> What a poor fool I was, blissful in my own ignorance. Little did I know how different things would be a mere six months later when she came along. My mother's womb is a Trojan horse, I tell you. <laughs> my folks call her an unexpected blessing. Please, if it walks like an accident and talks like an accident, let's just call it an accident, all right? <laughs> Smile, Maddie. I know what you're thinking. You think I'm just jealous of all the attention those fat little baby cheeks of hers are getting. But that's not it. That's not it at all. Snap, flash. Ha, so cute. My disdain for her is much more rational. See, she's going on 18 months now. At this point, most babies are babbling all sorts of nonsense. An elite few, like me when I was her age, have even started speaking words. Our precious little Maddie, gah. That's it, seriously. No ooh, no ah, no mama or papa. Just ga, over and over and over again. All day, ga, ga, all night. Ga, ga, I'm not doing all those gas. <laughs> Is that a sign of something mental or what? When I mention this to my mom, she replies with typical adult spin. Each person develops at her own pace, Thaddeus, and that's perfectly okay. Mom, you and dad got a face fax. That baby's dumb in the head. 
Thaddeus K. Fong, Martyr for Truth. <laughs> These days, Fu Manchu is considered an icon of early 20th century racism, but personally, I admire the guy. As you all should know from your homework last night, a prime number can be divided only by one in itself. I mean, who doesn't want to take over the world? Our man Fu just had the guts to do something about it. Heck, they even named a mustache after him. What are you drawing? That's Rosie Yee. I find her incredibly annoying, but I put up with it. When we get to high school, Rosie will most likely be built like a brick house. I've seen her mom. It's a facial hair configuration I'm calling the Thaddeus. I'm going to grow one as soon as I hit puberty. Then once I become president of planet Earth, I'm going to make every male over the age of 13 grow one. I'm planning on having a torrid affair with her 20 years from now, when my marriage to Miley Cyrus is on the rocks. <laughs> You're stupid. Whatever. After Rosie gets emotionally attached, I'll dump her like yesterday's laundry. Thaddeus, can you tell us what comes next? Mr. Miller, you ridiculous little man. As if anything you say has any value to me whatsoever. No, sir, I have no idea. Seven, Thaddeus. Next is seven. Then 11. Then 13. And there you have the first six prime numbers. How is this ever going to be useful in real life? Ha, good one, Rosie. Maybe we can have a love child together before I break your heart. <laughs> I'm glad you asked, Miss Yee. Prime numbers rarely incur in nature, but any society with reasonably developed mathematics can deduce what they are. In fact, NASA scientists have theorized that if aliens were ever to make contact with us, it would be through prime numbers. Mr. Miller, I stand corrected. You have taught me something of value. You've taught me the truth about my baby sister. I devote my Saturday to carefully observing Maddie. Click. Ga, ga, two. I'm not going to read all the gas. Three, five, seven, eleven, thirteen. It's so nice to see you two getting along, Thaddeus. Whatever. Seventeen. By early evening, I have enough data to confirm my suspicions. They're all prime numbers. Click. My sister is an alien. <laughs> so what exactly are we looking at here, sport? This is a chart of Maddie's gauze. Notice that they always come in a series, and the number of gauze in a series is always a prime number. Don't you see the implications? Prime number? Ah, a number that can be divided only by one in itself. Stay with me, Dad. I don't remember learning that stuff like that in the third grade. Dad, I'm smarter than you. I'm in accelerated math. Watch your tone, Thaddeus. And can we please get to the point? I have Pilates in 20 minutes. Fine, I'll spell it out for you. Your daughter is an alien. What? I know this is a lot for you, Mom, since you had her living inside of you for nine months. But the same thing happened to Sigourney Weaver. C-19. You gotta call the FBI and have them take her in for observation or dissection or something. I mean, who knows why she's on Earth? My own personal theory is that she's the harbinger of an invasion of Thaddeus. Stop! I really thought you'd work all this out with already. What with the Big Brother present we gave you and all those sessions with Dr. Darby? I'm disappointed. We'll make another appointment with Dr. Darby tomorrow. Ah, will you imbeciles get that baby drool out of your ears and listen to me? We're talking about planetary security here. Sometimes I find it hard to believe I actually emerged from that shallow, murky gene pool. But it doesn't matter. They'll be sorry. 
They'll be sorry when I'm elected president of planet Earth. They'll be sorry when Maddie finally emerges from her humanoid shell and eats them. They'll be sorry that they ever made me sit in the naughty chair. And besides, I don't need them to heed my warning, not when I have YouTube. <laughs> All right, so the, uh, the story progresses from there. At this point, are there any questions that I can answer? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I, I've used comics in two different ways in my classroom. One is um, I taught a computer art class for a number of years, and comics was actually a section within that. So we did a section on still art, then we did comics, then we did animation, and finally film. So uh, in that class, we would have students draw comics on paper and scan them in, do lettering and coloring on the, on the computer. The second way I've used comics was in a math class that I had to sub. So several years ago, one of my colleagues, a math teacher, had to go on long-term leave, and I was asked to sub for his class. The problem was that at that time, I was also working as the school's educational technologist, which meant that um, for you know, every, about every two weeks, I would have to spend two days working with another teacher, integrating technology into their, whatever they were doing in their classroom. So when I was subbing this class, every two weeks, I would have to miss a couple of days. Right? So, so they would end up having a sub for their long-term sub, which was, is terrible. Uh, as a way of making up for it, I started by videotaping myself giving lectures and then asking my sub to play these videotapes to my students when I was gone. And this was a disaster. They, they hated it. They, they came up and they told me, man, we thought you were boring in person, but on video, you're just unbearable. So I, I even tried to spice it up with like, special effects and stuff. I would snap my fingers and the board would erase itself. And it just, nothing worked. Nothing worked with the video. So finally, as a, as a, as a last-ditch effort, I decided to um, do all of my lectures in comics. So th these were done really quick. I would just take a Sharpie, I would draw out the lecture, and it would end up being maybe four to, to six pages long. And then I would ask my sub to Xerox them and pass them out to class. And this was, this was amazingly successful. As... as as horrible as the videos were, the comics were successful. They, uh, students would come up to me and they would ask me to um, do comics lectures even when I was there. And when I <laughs> probed them about it, they told me that um, they liked the comics first because it was visual and they were used to taking in information visually. And second, Unlike the video, they could read that comic at their own pace, right? If they didn't understand a, a part of the video, they, they weren't going to tell the sub to rewind and play again. Um, with the comic, they could just reread that passage. So the, the rate of information exchange within a comic is really in the hands of the reader. And that's not true for, you know, that's not true for film or for animation. So, so those are the two different ways that I've, I've used comics. I was so intrigued by that... Um, that experience that I had with that math class that I ended up doing my master's project on, on comics in the classroom. And I, I took one of the lessons that I had drawn really quickly for them with a Sharpie and made it into an online comic. So now if you, if you do a Google search on factoring comics, you'll find an online comic of mine about factoring. Go ahead. With the current state of uh, comics and print diminishing sales and sort of the, the popularity of the internet and how do you feel about webcomics in the future of print? Yeah, I, I, people are really freaked out. I think people in comics and in traditional books are really, really freaked out about the web. Um, I, th I think it's inevitable. I think that um, 
Com uh, comics on, on the web really offer a lot of storytelling possibilities that aren't possible when you have comics on paper. But at the same time, paper is its own unique experience. You know, I, I don't think that um, paper comics or paper books in general are ever going to go away. I just think that the, the paper books that we'll see will take advantage of their objectness. You know, they'll, they'll use the objectness, the, the fact that it's physically in your hands, as a, as a part of the storytelling. And then in, in comics, um, Scott McCloud, who's this professional comics nerd that wrote a, a, a book called Understanding Comics, he also wrote a book called Reinventing Comics, where he talks a lot about the unique properties of comics on the web. And he, um, he describes this thing that he calls the infinite canvas. I do think we'll see more and more of that right, as, uh, as we progress. Right now, a lot of web comics are still locked into the idea of a physical page, even though there is no physical page there. And I think as um, new cartoonists, as younger cartoonists come up in an environment where there is no page, they'll take more advantage of that infinite canvas. Go ahead. Um, so your comics are uh, very down-to-earth and um, coherent and very funny. Uh, but what do you think about those like, very high-art comics that are abstract and... Uh, would you ever think about doing stuff like that? I don't think I'm smart enough to do that, <laughs> to do the really abstract stuff, you know? Um, uh, uh, Scott McCloud, I'm, an, I'm, I'm sort of a McCloud disciple, right? So uh, in, in one of his books, he talks about these different tribes within comics and how each of these different tribes has a different emphasis on, on the comics that they do. So um, there's, a, there's a formalist tribe, which is what you're describing, where... The, the focus of people who are formalists, of cartoonists who are formalists, isn't necessarily conveying a story. It's pushing the, it's pushing the limits of the form, right? They're, they're trying to figure out how far can we push this medium that we call comics. And then there are, um, there are storytellers. I feel like I fit more in the storyteller, where our, our main concern is to convey a story and keep a reader interested from beginning to end. So the good thing about being a storyteller is you can look at the formulas and see what they're doing and figure out what pieces are successful in their experimentation and sort of steal it. <laughs> and I think that's, that's generally what I do. Um, I have a friend named Jason Chiga who's, who's um, he's, a, he's a Berkeley alum as well. He majored in math here. And he's much more of a formalist. So I regularly read his comics and try to steal ideas. He recently came out with this book called Meanwhile, which is a choose-your-own-adventure book. It's a cross between a maze and a comic. If you haven't seen it, you've got to see it. It's an amazing book. Meanwhile, it's put out by Abrams. Go ahead. Um, as someone who grew up as a second-generation Chinese-American, um, I really found that like, a lot of the stuff that you've written, uh, American-born Chinese, is relevant to how um, I saw how I grew up. I was wondering what made you have those ideas, and also incorporating stories like The Monkey King, who you know we grow up with, uh, learning about when you know we go to Chinese school and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I went to Chinese school for 12 years, and I can barely write my name. Isn't that sad? My parents told me that if I didn't pay attention in Chinese school, I would really regret it as an adult, and they were totally right. <laughs> um, I think, you know, when I started American Born Chinese, I'd been doing comics for a number of years, and I had these stories where I had Asian-American protagonists, but their Asian-Americanness never played a significant part in, in the story. It was almost incidental. Uh, and since my um, own cultural heritage is such an important part of how I understand myself and my place in the world, I knew I wanted to do some sort of a story that dealt with that head-on. 
So that's what American Born Chinese is. I came up with these three different ideas, and I couldn't decide which one I liked the best. So in the end, almost as an intellectual exercise, I, I've tried to weave them together into a single narrative. So a lot of that is, I mean, um, I think that I don't, I don't think that the like the emotional core that I was trying to get at with American Born Chinese is uniquely Asian American. Uh, in any way. But I, I just think a lot of immigrants' kids or a, a lot of people who find themselves as minorities in whatever situation they're in go through that sort of thing. I have a friend um, who's white who grew up in Hawaii in a predominantly Japanese-American environment. And she would tell me that you know, when she would hang out with her friends at the beach, before she got to the beach, she would make sure that she would get her feet really dirty because she was really embarrassed by how pale her feet were compared to her friends. And I think even though, you know, we come from two really different cultural backgrounds, a lot of the emotions that we were dealing with when we were growing up are, are very similar. Any other questions? Go ahead. Um, so uh, are you still... Uh attached to pencil and paper, or are you actually using tech stuff to... I am attached to pencil and paper. I actually, I gave up a whiteout, though. I don't do any whiteout physically anymore. Whenever I mess up, I just go, oh, I'll fix that in Photoshop. <laughs> but uh, I still do draw all of my comics with pencil, paper, and ink. I know a lot of my cartoonist friends are moving to uh, using tablets, and I might in the future. They tell me that it's way faster. So I, I might in the future, but I, I really like the physicality of drawing. Any other questions? All right. I think we're almost out of time, too. Well, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for your attention and your time. It was, it was a pleasure being here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.